Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Dr. Asia Muhammad, who's a naturopathic doctor that uses evidence-based medicine to provide individualized care to each patient. She has a special interest in gastroenterology, mind-body medicine, and stress management, as increasing research demonstrates the role of stress and disease. And we're so lucky because we actually have had the opportunity to work with her. Um, as you know, Dr. Asia, you've written a few articles now for the fullest, and I love your writing so much and really appreciate you sharing with our audience. So I'm really excited to have you on. Hi. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. And I really do enjoy like contributing the few articles here and there. And I think it just elevates the, the space with regard to like health and wellness and just kind of gives it more like, um, like a, a objective, I guess, backing. So yeah, thanks for having me write to write on your your um, side, and then also for having me on the podcast today. Yeah, of course. I know some of the articles that you've shared have really, you know, talked about the role of Black health in America mm-hmm. and COVID and the history of it all. And I think it's so important in sharing that perspective. But you have just so much to share with us, so I'm excited to get into other things like you know, what you share on your social media pages to your audience. I think you've done such a great job in making things really concise and easy to read and straight to the point. I think, you know, your presence is really needed. And I I love following along the things that you share. And so I thought it'd be fun to kind of take some of those subjects and discuss things that you've kind of gone into and you subtly share certain things and, and you, I really appreciate it. So one of the things recently um, was looking at that you were sharing was about the fact that FDA approval is not the same as 100% safety. I think that's really important to discuss. Mm-hmm. And I know you kind of got into the fact that a third of approved drugs have postmark side effects that range from mild to severe. So one third, that's a huge number. That's a significant number, right? And, you know, people think that because something is FDA approved, that it's A, going to be effective for them, and then B, it's going to be safe. Or maybe A, they think it's that means it's safe first, and then there's some effectiveness. But, you know, the human body is so complex, and, you know, we all have different, like, gene SNPs, which are, like, just little alterations in how our genes may kind of manifest or work compared to the next person. I mean, we're all so different. And the fact that we apply these like types of blanket therapies, like I understand that they're useful and they have utility. But the other side of it is like, what about these mild, moderate, severe or death related side effects that nobody discusses? And, you know, the FDA actually, you know, never says that there is no risk. It's just that when something is FDA approved, the benefits tend to outweigh the risks, but there are definitely risks. Um, associated with anything that's, you know, you're putting into your body. I know. And I think especially right now, it's so important. I mean, it's always been like you've shared about Vioxx and and Mm -hmm. so many other drugs that have been approved that have killed so many people and people overdose on even over-the-counter things all the time, like Tylenol. and, And you've shared about how that is destroying people's guts in general. But we'll get into that um, when we talk a little bit more about chronic disease. But in this situation, I think as we start to see the vaccine now mm-hmm. have FDA approval and then potentially the booster, mm-hmm. um, 
which I, I've had like mixed readings on it. Like some yeah. had to say it's not, but then I think they're just trying to push it through. But regardless of that, knowing that just because FDA approval doesn't mean it's a hundred percent safe. I think it's t- people, a lot of parents are in a tough spot. I mean, people mm-hmm. can make decisions for themselves. And again, like you said, you just need to know that there are risks still associated with it. And it could be up to even something like a third of the time, right? Yeah. And it's the, the sh- crazy part about all of this with regard to the vaccine is that there's no like recourse, you know, if you were to have an incident that occurred due to the vaccine or that you may think is associated like with medications, you know, for example, you can, you know, file lawsuits, right? You know, claiming harm or claiming misrepresentation of the drug and so forth. And there have been billions of dollars of lawsuits filed against pharma companies related to drugs that are FDA approved, but there's just no kind of financial recourse or compensation available if this is something that injures you. And like a lot of times doctors are not even going to denote it in the chart. Like I was just reading some literature this morning in regards to how this, this clinician was saying how it takes like a long, it takes about 30 minutes or so to enter these like adverse events into the reporting system. So some doctors don't even like, won't even enter them for the time to sake. And then other times I had somebody call me with what they think was like an adverse related event. And they saw three neurologists and according to them, like none of their neurologists wanted to document it in their medical history that this was possibly associated with this, the shot they got. And they saw an OBGYN and the OBGYN was the one who actually documented it and reported it to CDC and VAERS. But you know, it's just so much that is missed. And you think about all the people who do try to talk to their doctor about it and that they are dismissed or, you know, just a level of denialism. And, you know, sometimes the doctors are afraid too, you know, to document this because they're like, Hey, I don't want my name associated with somebody documenting this. So I don't know, like it's really a great kind of sketchy area, but it's just, it goes to show that we really have like placed so much trust in these like corporate or I guess federal sponsored groups. Um, but that does not mean that, that well, what they're doing is safe or safe for everyone. I know. I'm curious. Um, you were talking about how you've, I'm sure you've treated people who have gotten the shot. Is that Well, not really, to be honest with you. Um, A lot of people will call me in regards to what they think may be like related side effects. And, you know, I'll probably like try to do some naturopathic protocols for them. But honestly, I've not seen so many of them. Um, To be honest, you would think I would with regard to how I talk about these things on social media, but I still see primarily like mostly GI in liver or chronic, you know, inflammatory issues. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about a new airline I recently came across called Aero. I was really intrigued because they're a semi-private airline company that flies to places my husband and I either love going to or have on our bucket list like Aspen, Jackson Hole, Sun Valley, and even places closer to home in Napa and Northern California. However, the fact that a lot of these destinations are in mountain ranges or national parks can sometimes make them difficult to get to and usually involves multiple flights, which makes me hesitant to book with two kids. Then I came across Arrow and realized this could be the solution I've been waiting for, especially during these unpredictable times with COVID. Like I mentioned, Arrow is a semi-private airline that also provides amazing services that honestly for me make it absolutely worth the investment. I love that they use cabin light therapy based on psychology, For example, their custom colored lighting system helps disassociate from motion sickness and their onboarding warm light and soft music helps calm your nervous system. I also love the fact that you can customize your meals and choose healthy options for you and the whole family. 
Plus, finally, our dog can come with us as they're pet friendly. Another feature I love about not flying with a major airline are their private terminals. Traveling with a toddler and a newborn already adds so much extra time and forethought getting to and from the airport. And having this expedited check-in system and also just a little more privacy to get the kids ready for the flight is priceless. If you've got an upcoming trip to an outdoors location and are looking for an alternative to the major airlines, you should definitely check out Aero. And until December 31st, be sure to use code THEFULLEST when booking your next flight to get 10% off your trip, which is a big deal. So enjoy and hopefully you check them out. I have a friend who is a naturopathic doctor, but she's not practicing. She just graduated from best year and she was showing me how um, just the organization as a whole has really recommended. I know. And I think that's so insane and really wild because it, to me, goes against. I mean, I'm reading things on social media saying that there's no such thing as natural immunity. People who are so into natural health and living on with the garden and, and just, you know, being. Yeah, there's a lot of that happening. Yeah. And I, so I guess I'm just really inspired by you and your work and the fact that you've, you know, gone down this route. And I think there are a lot of people that are naturopathic doctors or midwives or anyone that you would assume would be in this same space as us and have the same opinions, but who are recommending it. So I'm curious, I want to hear what, you know, what, made you have the decision that you have, or even not just about the vaccine, but, you know, a lot of people are more likely to say I'm functional medicine or I'm this. So I think, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes take Tylenol, sometimes take these other things. And I'm not here to shame anyone for taking it obviously, or Mm -hmm. giving it to their children, but I think understanding really how bad these things can can be for our bodies and staying away from them as much as possible is such an important role to have as a mentor as a naturopathic doctor so I'm curious like how did you kind of get into that is it the school as a whole teaches that or no I guess with are you referring to just kind of me being like a little bit outspoken with that regard yes. or like, no, well, honestly, yeah, I'm believing what you believe. Cause I, yeah, not yeah. A, I know naturopathic doctors that are like drinking and smoking and doing drugs. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, I guess that's probably my upbringing. Like I grew up with parents that just took no crap and they just would call stuff out as they saw it. And I guess it's just kind of in me naturally to be that way. Like even in my personal life, I'm that way with regard to like just injustices. I don't like seeing that. And it's just, it's, it makes me uncomfortable. I remember like being in school and like I would see kids like fighting and I just felt so like, I don't even know how to describe the feeling, but I would run from it because I just hate it to see kids fighting and people would be like, oh, let's go see, you know, what the fight is about. So I've always been like, a, like just have this like strong fiber in my being against like seeing people taking advantage of or just being mistreated. And there are uh, like, you know, authorities that are watching this or authorities that you know, don't care or turn a blind eye. And so many functional medicine, even naturopathic doctors, I've seen recommending this shot when it first came out. And I'm like, there's not even enough literature to at least just sit back and chill out until more information comes out. But they were just literally blowing it up on in social media, recommending it. And I had to unfollow them because I was like, I'm not, I can't subscribe to that. And I can't, you know, approve of this. We know about pharmaceutical drugs that 
get pushed through and rushed through FDA approval that end up damaging so many folks. And here you are as a naturopathic doctor, like treat the whole person, root cause person, and you're out here promoting something that's only been out less than a year. Like it blew my mind. So, you know, I think for me, like I'll, I'll see a post something on social media and I, it will like just fire me up. And a lot of my content comes from me, like trying to be proactive and re- reacting, but being proactive about the reaction with regard yeah. to other people's like um, content. It's just me getting on social media and I'll see something and I'm like, oh, this is bull crap. I'm going to make a post about this. And I try to like, you know, use it for educational purposes instead of like being reactive and like, you know, antagonizing somebody on social media. But yeah. Yeah. No, I love that approach. And I think it, it requires being really steadfast about beliefs. And, you know, I think it's really easy to go back to and resort back to, oh, you know, it's fine. Like this idea of balance to me is really interesting or the concept of balance because balance is different for everyone. So one person is like, oh, I'm super balanced. Like I, I try and be supernatural, but then I do all this other stuff if I need Mm -hmm. to. Or it's like, no, that's not an option because that's going to destroy my liver, destroy my gut. It's going to do all these things and make me more susceptible to all the other things that are out there or chronic disease. And so I think that kind of takes us to the conversation of how interesting it is that a lot of times you hear and read news headlines that are obviously just all based on making us fearful. Right. But oh my gosh, this person was so healthy and then they just died. And you're like, yeah, no. how is that possible? It doesn't make any sense if you really think about it. Something was obviously going on in their body. And we have so many young people that, you know, especially they love to talk about the young people that are dying that are in their twenties or whatever. And I'm just like, okay, does that person party a lot? Does that person, Mm -hmm. how does Mm -hmm. their body and they look healthy? What are they eating? So I'm curious what you have to say about all that. You know, in America, I don't even know what the word health means to in America, you know, in American literature, it's like when we talk about somebody being healthy, it's like, that has no like real merit. It's just semantics, honestly, unless you know, like somebody's like some of their biological markers, unless you know, like what possible, you know, snips they have. Like, I don't even know. I don't even use that term healthy. Like I just try to use the word like optimization with regard to health. But when, when you see these reports saying, oh, this person was super healthy, it's like, well, not necessarily. Like most, a lot of Americans, I think the statistic is now a third of Americans are pre-diabetic. Um, and then you have like, X amount millions are diabetics. You have like, like the, the weight disparity issue with regard to obesity, you have like blood pressure, you know, like when you look at some of these markers, you see now, and even like child populations that they have high blood pressure, um, as pediatric, you're seeing fatty liver in pediatric populations. I had a, somebody I saw a couple of weeks ago who was a 12, was diagnosed with fatty liver at 12 years old. And if you see this oh person, God. they look perfectly healthy. Like when I saw them on like the virtual like visit, they look, I would never assume that they had health issues, but that's what I'm saying. Like you do not know, nobody knows what healthy is unless you've seen somebody blood work or you know what diagnosis they do or, you know, do not have, I guess. But it's just a matter of like, you know, semantics. And like you said, the fear mongering and, you know, trying to inundate people with this logic that it's affecting everybody equally. And we know that's just not true. So, I love that you use the word optimization. I think that's great. And I want to get to fatty liver. How does a 12-year-old get fatty liver? It has to be associated with their diet, right? Yeah, I mean, fatty liver is typically non-alcoholic fatty liver. I should add that distinction. It's typically associated with the diet. 
Now, there are other things that can cause fat deposition in the liver, genetic related issues. There also, obviously, alcohol can also cause fatty liver. Um, but when, it, when you look at pediatric populations with something they call cryptogenic cirrhosis, um, they back in the day, they used to say like, oh, there's this cryptogenic cirrhosis, cryptogenic, meaning we don't know what's causing it. But these people now have cirrhosis of the liver. And this whole time, we think it was probably fatty liver disease due to the diet. I mean, medicine is just so antiquated with regard to how they, it's taken decades to figure out that the diet is linked to people's liver disease. And it just blows my mind the level of, I don't even want to say stupidity, because it's not really stupidity. I don't even know what it is that you know, it's taken us so long to, to realize like, hey, what people are eating is affecting their health. But it really bothers me because you now you see these kids who have fatty liver. And when you have fatty liver, like I think the numbers like 15% of people with fatty liver, 15 to 20 will progress to NASH. And NASH is a long term, but basically it means like non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is inflammation from the fat. So when you get to that fatty liver picture that has inflammation associated with it instead of just fat, then you start running into other like possible um, long-term sequelae or issues such as um, fibrosis of the liver. So it takes about you know, there are like four stages of fibrosis and fibrosis is essentially, essentially like scarring. So when you look at like your arm, if you have like a scar on your arm, it's like a little darkened or a little lightened, or, you know, have, you can feel the, the, um, different in the difference in the texture of the scar that's fibrosis. So when that happens in your liver, um, it starts to alter the functionality of the liver and you have reduced functionality of the liver and the more scarring and the more fibrosis, the less your liver is functioning as it should. And you have issues with all the processes associated with your liver. Liver, which is many. And when you start to get into stages of fibrosis, there are four stages. There's stage one and there's stage two, three, and four. Stage four is essentially cirrhosis where you're like pretty much in stage liver disease. And once you get to stage four, they typically give you 10 years to live if you make it that long. Um, but it's just crazy because when you see it in child pop children populations, like, I don't even know what they're doing now because there's not actually an FDA-approved medication for fatty liver. I'm sure, and I know there are pharmaceutical companies that are working on them. So as soon as it comes out, I'm sure they'll have tons of a whole new market to make billions and more dollars. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you look at these pediatric populations and you think about these kids who are have fatty liver. And now they're like in their 20s with fibrosis. And it's like, well, if this keeps going, you're not going to make it past 40 or 50 if you make it that far. So it blows my mind. And fatty liver is strongly linked with the non-alcoholic fatty liver is strongly linked with dietary components. So if you have a kid that's drinking a lot of fruit juices, which a lot of kids do, um, and you look at the first ingredient, high fructose corn syrup, you know, your liver is a central source for taking in fructose. So when high fructose corn syrup has a high, higher ratio of fructose in it than say like an apple will or like anything that's naturally sweet or fruit, um, but high fructose corn syrup has a higher amount. So the body is not used to dealing with such high amounts that you find in these like, you know, man-made products. When you do like drink fruit juices or Capri Suns, I don't know, or any other product that has high fructose corn syrup, a lot of processed foods, even bread has high fructose corn syrup in it. It's a sweetener in it. Most breads will have it unless it does not, unless you like read the ingredients, unless it says it, most breads have high fructose corn syrup. And yeah. So it's just like we're eating all of this crap and it's going to the liver. The liver's like, we don't know what to do with it. Convert it to fat. Let's store it as fat in the liver. And then you just develop fatty liver disease. I know. And when you talk to people about eating a mainly organic diet, even if it's organic, it could still have high fructose corn, you know, of yeah. things in it. But talking about, you know, eating a diet where you really do look at the ingredients and things and you are so much more mindful, it becomes such a privileged conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important um, to discuss this because 
on one hand, we know this is the way people were meant to eat, that we came in and we effed shit up, basically. Yep. And we this way and we subsidized things and then we ruined you know the supply and we created all these businesses that are just made for getting people sick and just making profit but basically i think when the conversation comes to a privileged state i think it's important to think about how we can shift it so that these foods become less expensive for people mm-hmm. i mean obviously when you go and buy vegetables and uh, fruit and those types of foods I think that it is still a lot cheaper than, you know, buying packaged foods that are marketed to paleo people or whatever. That's really expensive. If you really get down to basics, the fruits and vegetables are so much cheaper. They are. But I still think it's like, I always think, especially becoming a parent, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, you're a mom, you have children to feed, they're hungry. And it's just so much easier to feed them the things that they yeah, want. Yeah, the quick and easy things that they, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are going to be a little bit more processed unless you can try and find them. Like, for example, you mentioned bread. Well, there's sourdough bread that mm-hmm. you can look for that is yeast-free and only has mm-hmm. like three ingredients. It's just water, salt, and organic flour and maybe like a sourdough starter. But like, right. I think that, you know, that's really hard to come by. And when you do, then it's way more expensive than just buying the regular loaf of bread. And I think about this so often because I wonder what is it that we can do? I mean, a lot of people, obviously organic is more widely available now, which is incredible, but like what steps can we take to make it more available for people who are, you know, less privileged Mm -hmm. that that should deserve to eat this way. Right. Eating this way from the beginning because everything should have been organic from the very beginning and it was. Right, you know? Right. Yeah. Destroying it. And I and it sucks that I think that a lot of people can be aware, but then they might not have the means to make the change, which can always be an excuse as well. And mm-hmm. if you you know, prioritization is so important. And I think a lot of people, especially people who have the means, but instead they're like actually just spending it on going out to bars and stuff. Right. I can't handle that. Right. I think also, like you said, it's just a shift in the mentality. Cause if there is a wheel, I feel like there's always a way and farmer's markets, there are so many like ways to get cheap produce. And it's just, you might have to be more creative with like the flavoring flavor profile, but even like there are healthy, like, um, processed food alternatives now that, you know, we'll say on the label, like no high fructose corn syrup or no this or no that. And it might be a little bit more costly, but Um, I think that that's just something that has to be like figured out because of the other side of that is like continuing the process to other junk foods. And now the kids have, you know, fatty liver, diabetes, obesity, and then there are other issues you're dealing with later on. So I guess it becomes more expensive later on regardless Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. of the health issue. And then and then you're continuing the cycle of supporting those companies so that they're going to continue to make the product. Exactly. I think that's where it comes down to is like really not supporting them so that we're not going to buy this, but I don't know. I get stuck in my bubble and then I go out into the world and then I'm like, Oh my gosh, is this, (laughs) is this actually happening? (laughs) I mean, even in college, like college students that are struggling that can't buy, Mm -hmm. You know, I went to school in Oregon and um, most of the students were in so much debt paying their own way through college. And yeah. 
were like, I can't afford it. But then they would buy like $14 cigarettes, like fancy cigarettes that they go through in one night. And I'm like, do you see the hypocrisy here? But yeah. And I think that hypocrisy just extends into, um, you know, as we get older and then, you know, really relevant right now to talk about because people just want quick fixes. So they want a vaccine that they can take so that they think that they're being healthy. They take the shot and then they go out into the world and no one's discussing the fact that alcohol sales rose to such an insane number Mm -hmm. during the pandemic and continues to. And I know so many people that I, I mean, I don't even at this point, I've really edited down my group of friends, but but like, I know so many family members that are terrified, but they drink like fish Mm -hmm. Yep. and I'm curious if you happen to have any of the statistics or know, like, you know, what alcohol, drinking alcohol or taking pharmaceuticals, um, and how that's associated to someone's ability to overcome any, any sort of illness, but also COVID. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I honestly wouldn't know like off the top of my head, like correlations with like alcohol and how it specifically dampens the immune response. Like I would imagine there's a ton of literature on it, but with with regard to specifics in terms of types of immune cells and like the type of immune response that's muted, I wouldn't know. Um, But just knowing like how chronic alcohol does tax the liver and how the liver is important for immunity and knowing how your like chronic alcohol consumption affects the gut and increases intestinal permeability, you know, I would imagine that there's also correlations with how indirectly it may also um, negatively affect and dampen the immune function considering how considering a significant portion of your immune function or immune cells are housed in your um, intestinal tract through your Peyer's patches and something else called GALT which is G-A-L-T it stands for gut associated um, lymphoid tissue but it's it's essentially your immune system and so when you think about how alcohol affects your intestinal microbiome how it affects your your intestinal permeability and also the mu- mucosa of the intestinal tract which is a first immune response for the gut specifically, I mean, I would be willing to bet money that there's tons of literature espousing the correlation between chronic alcohol um, consumption or even single hand, like night alcohol consumption and an immune function. But off the top of my head, I don't know of anything like specific. And then discussing a little bit about gut issues and chronic disease in general. I know that's your specialty and Mm -hmm. I'm curious when someone like comes to you with gut issues or IBS or Crohn's or whatever they might have, because I I'm curious, like, do you believe that there's, you know, we talked a little bit about fatty liver, right. And what it can turn into, do you think that there's a stage where there's just no going back? Yeah. I mean, once you are cirrhotic, I mean, it's, your liver is like a raisin at that point, you know, and I'm not saying that it's not, reversible. Like I don't ever want to be the person that's like, Oh, that's not possible. Like, I don't know that I would bet there's some somebody in the world who knows that there's, there's something you can do to reduce or reverse, but it's not me. But what I will say is that 
there's this really cool um, scientist. He's a PhD. I can't think of what his name is, but he wrote this book called The Alpha Lipoic Acid Breakthrough. And he talked about, I listened to him on this podcast one day, and he was talking about how some of his early research focused on folks with um, fibrosis of the liver, where they had this scarring in the liver. And he was able to halt the fibrosis and in some cases reverse like the fibrosis of the liver with alpha lipoic acid IVs. Like it wasn't oral. He said the oral supplements did work to help protect the liver and reduce progression. And there's literature actually on that. But when he gave it to people in an IV format, um, it seemed to be more potent with regard to supporting the liver and reducing some of the fibrosis. So that was my first time hearing that. So like I said, I'm sure there are many minds out there that if we they all came together could figure out something. But at this current time, I don't know of anything that will reverse like cirrhosis once you have that that's why most folks once they are cirrhotic they um, want they are trying to go on like get on like the liver transplant list to get a new liver what do you think about routine surgeries like appendix removal or even gallbladder removal stuff like that do you think that obviously i'm sure that there's a time and a place for it but the reason i'm asking is i know someone who I was with and he was having pain in his appendix, mm-hmm. but, um, it w- took like days to kind of figure out if it was the appendix or not. And I did some research and I had some homeopathics with me that were actually supposedly really helpful in mm-hmm. that, that sort of pain. And he took it and it really helped him, but then he still felt, um, went to the ER. And then when he went to the ER, it took them maybe like, I would say 15 hours to confirm that it was his appendix. And then they just were like, okay, let's just do surgery. But I was thinking it took so long. It wasn't like one of those situations where it was like rupturing or something like that. So I'm curious if you think at at what point are those um, surgeries actually necessary? Do you think that there are a lot that aren't that people just do routinely? Yes and no. Like, yes, with regard to, I think that with regard to gallbladder removal around like, gallbladder function, I do see people having those removed just because they have abdominal discomfort and they don't actually have stones or anything. It's just they did a test and it's like, oh, their gallbladder is not functioning at, you know, the percent it needs to. So let's take it out. That's probably why you have pain. And I've seen people have their gallbladders taken out for this issue and they still have the same issues after, which means it probably wasn't the gallbladder. So I think that with that regard, a lot of times like um, procedures to have the gallbladder removed with regard to gallbladder function, I think they may be, I don't want to say over recommend it, but possibly, but a lot of folks also have the, the gallbladder removed and the pain goes away. Um, with regard to the appendix, I think that's more of like an emergent serious issue. Now there are like naturopathic protocols, like when somebody has like appendix related issues that you may try to use or implore. I don't usually go for those because I find like appendicitis to be a really serious issue for people. So I'll just typically have them, you know, go the conventional route if they're at that space. Um, But yeah. And I think it's funny because a lot of times like you can have a UTI and you kind of have an idea of maybe how you got it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm when it comes to something like the appendix or gallbladder or kidney, it's so much more difficult to figure out for even someone like me. I just don't understand how that becomes a thing. Like a friend of mine had a kidney infection. She didn't know why. And then they just gave her an antibiotic because they told her it was going to turn into um, sepsis. Mm -hmm. Take it. And I'm, and I'm super against antibiotics. Like I'm literally on my deathbed. Like I don't want one. Mm -hmm. I don't want to take any. So I'm curious, things like that. 
um, I think it's important for people to, if it's possible, have an idea of how that happens or why that happens or how to, you know, prevent. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a good question with regard to appendicitis. I'm sure there are many like theories and kind of like background with regard to like people who have appendicitis, what their diets are typically like, or what some of their like, um, activities may may involve and with regard to alcohol consumption and stuff but i'm not sure of any clear links with regard to alcohol and appendicitis that's more like a pancreatitis related issue um but you know when you look at your appendix it's kind of like a storehouse for bacteria in the gut and there's this really cool study showing how the appendix essentially like contains bacterial like families that can essentially re-inoculate your gut so if your gut you know is jacked up or maybe gets wiped out the appendix can release its own like bacteria to help kind of restore the intestinal microbiome yeah and so you know when they remove it you don't actually need it to live per se like you're not gonna there's no literature saying that if you have your appendix removed you live five years less than somebody who didn't but you know you may have some other GI issues down the line, you may not, but I do think that what's in our body is there for a reason. So <laughs> doctors yeah. say like, oh, you don't need that. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, you actually do. Um, same thing with your gallbladder. You know, your gallbladder is there to store bile that your liver makes. And when you take it out, you run into issues of the liver just releasing bile, however it sees fit. And you might just have more bile floating around in your in- intestines than somebody who actually has their gallbladder, which can change the microbiome in the gut it's as well. So I think with regard to conventional medicine, a lot of it's like, okay, is this an emergency? Will this cause you any serious issues? No, but I think the human body is so much more like nuanced and gentle and complex than we even know of, you know, and like all these things that we think are, you know, inconsequential, you know, play a role that we in conventional medicine or in medical world think, like it's not a big deal. But I think that these small things are big deals in their own way. It's so true. Like you said, I think our body is so intelligent. So it might not seem like a big deal because maybe they did a surgery, they removed it and they see that everyone's fine and they're right. alive and long lives. But it's because our body is so intelligent mm-hmm. that it figures out a way to go around mm-hmm. it and still function. But obviously it's not optimal function, like you said. Right. And so it turns into other things. But Anyways, I know you have to go. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.